Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hey, everybody. Welcome to what is now the last episode of Tech on Reg for the year 2020. Uh, and what a monumental year it has been. Today with us, we're doing sort of a 2020 regulatory roundup year in review with some really awesome guests. First, we've got Joanne Barefoot, uh, the CEO and founder of AIR, the Alliance for Innovative Regulation, co-founder of Hummingbird RegTech, uh, and also a former deputy comptroller of the currency. And we also have with us Jason Henricks, co-host of Breaking Banks US, CEO of the Alloy Labs Alliance, co-founder of FinTech Forge, VC, super awesome guy, and my dear friend. And uh, person who likes to drone on and on about regulation while his four-year-old wanders away, not caring what the latest you know issuance from the Office of the Comptroller of Currency said. Well, you know, the girls will get on board uh, at some point, uh, but because of Jason's love for uh, regulatory nerd talk, hence why he and I have become such close friends amongst other reasons. So Joanne, Jason, really psyched to have you here. Um, and, you know, it's been it's been an insane year on so many levels. Sort of talking about the insanity of the regulation seems almost like tertiary, right? Like it's just sort of like, off here that, you know, we've been so focused on the nuts and bolts of getting getting through 2020. And there have been so many things that have dominated industry's priorities right now that I think sometimes this year uh, focus on the regulatory impact of this year hasn't really been front and center. I don't know if you guys have sort of felt the same thing. Obviously, COVID has dominated everything, but I think in the regulatory arena, the biggest impact from COVID has been the acceleration of regulatory, acceleration of technology adoption, both in the industry and by regulators themselves. I feel like we've packed a decade's worth of tech adoption and, and innovation into a few months this year. So the financial activities have gotten driven into online and digital channels, just like everything else has. And the regulators have done the same. They figured out how to work from home. They figured out how to collect information differently. They've accelerated projects like digital regulatory reporting. So I don't think we're ever going back from most of this except at the margin. So I think we're going to land in 2021 with a, a whole lot more focus on everything that is uh, digital, both in the industry and for the regulators. Completely agree with that, Joanne. And the, the question I have is, so we went from this stance of we can't to we must, right? You know, especially things like work from home and cloud and all of these you know, pieces. The question is, is there going to be a move that we want to slow down? Like it was all too much. Is there going to be, you know, we're going to ring in 2021 with a giant COVID hangover around digital transformation. People are going to try and revert or now that we've actually broken up the scar tissue, are we going to be able to maintain the momentum? You know, and I hope it's the latter. Um, 
and reasonably. What's, what are your thoughts? So I've been thinking about this a lot. And strangely enough, I think there might be a difference between acceleration of reg tech and supervisory tech versus fintech. On the reg tech side, I think it's full speed ahead. I talked to a senior regulator recently who said that the last crisis froze up innovation, uh, paralyzed it, nothing happened for years after that, whereas this one is accelerating it. And I don't think we're going back from that in terms of the regulators' interests, although we'll talk in a moment about their shifting priorities with a new administration and a new Congress coming in. On FinTech, though, well, speaking of a new uh, administration in Congress, <laughs> I think that there's a, uh, I don't think it's just COVID fatigue or slowing down. I think there's a lot of skepticism about the value of FinTech benefiting consumers. We're seeing this from the leaders in Congress. We're seeing it from some of the transition team members. And I think that it's a mistake for the FinTech world to feel complacent that everybody knows that fintechs are good guys and are trying to do the right thing and trying to make things better for consumers. There's a lot of deep skepticism that innovation is not necessarily a good thing, that it can mask uh, predatory practices, that some of it is an attempt to get around usury laws. I think fintech is really going to have, have a year of um uh, make or break in a lot of ways from a policy regulatory standpoint. Uh, all right, Jason, I know you have 87 things to say about that. The new administration, hearing from Joanne that what the rumblings we're hearing from a new administration is that, you know, innovation in fintech is masking otherwise bad practices that, you know, we don't want. Those are the same arguments we've been hearing on the state level against the the notions of innovation sandboxes. And, you know, we've been hearing that for for a while, right? It's those sentiments don't feel new to me, but maybe now, I mean, are we are we moving backwards? What do you think, Jason? Well, you know, I worry that one of the biggest things that we've labeled as innovation, it might not have been intentional on the part of the startups, but where they see an unmet need are people that really, especially on the lending side, are people who shouldn't actually potentially be taking on more debt. And just going deeper into, you know, the credit stack, in my mind, is not actually all that innovative. It's just being masked by, you know, the pretty flow and the fact that you can do it all online and changes to you know, some of the ways and the frequency with which you repay. And that's where I think we're going to need to see a lot of reconciliation in the coming year where people didn't fully understand or due to COVID and other things, they had to dip into the stack. They're dancing with the devil in doing it, but you know that isn't real innovation. So I, I agree. Could I just jump in on oh, that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that, but I'll add two points to it. One is that we're on the cusp of a real breakthrough in how to do credit underwriting in a smarter way, which is not about making loans to people who can't repay them. It's about making loans to people who can repay them, but we can't tell that using the traditional credit scoring and credit history tools that we've had, which are old, not 
not to take away from the traditional uh, credit bureaus, they're innovating too. But if you, I'm on, I chair the board of FinReg Lab, for example, and we've done research finding that if you use cash flow underwriting instead of just traditional credit underwriting, you can say yes to a lot of people who are credit worthy, but who have, have been excluded, not because they, uh, aren't can't repay the loan but because the lender can't easily tell and so they just say no to them or, or charge them more and the other is the online lending model itself the efficiency of it granted there are lots of issues with it some models are abusive there are you know problems with higher fraud and so on but the fact remains it's so much less expensive to serve people that way if we look at the ppp paycheck protection program numbers when the fintech lenders were let into that after it had already gotten started and this was the first time they were allowed into sba programs um, they performed really well in meeting the needs of very small businesses one to ten employees which are the hardest I have the hardest time getting bank financing. They're disproportionately owned by women and people of color. And um, just the efficiency of that business model is a big boon, in my view, yep. to financial inclusion. And it may or may not have the full enthusiasm of the new, um, new leadership in Washington. Uh, so here, here to the use of alternative data and uh, the leveraging of technology to more efficiently serve, you know, traditionally underserved populations and small businesses. Um, so when we talk about alternative data, right, Joanne, is, is that one of the, the data driven trends that that you hope will gain more focus, you know, in 2021? Um, it's. I, I think that the skepticism around the types of things that are going to open up access to credit and uh, banking services to these populations, the fact that it's met with skepticism by the incoming administration is so like ironic, right? Like, isn't that so ironic? <laughs> Anyone can jump in here. It's sort of like, it's a head scratcher for me. I mean, I have spent my career working on financial consumer protection and inclusion, and the epiphany that I had six or seven years ago was that we have been trying to accomplish inclusion and protection through regulation forever, you know, for like a half a century if you start with the Truth and Lending Act, and, uh, and that we can do better through technology on a lot of these goals if we regulate it in the right way. So it, it would be uh, ironic and unfortunate if um, if there was part of this overall technology backlash that we seem to be involved in, um, if people shut down some of these innovations before they really took a good hard look at all the good that they can do, even though there are risks connected with them. Well, and I think that is one of the things that you know, I am hopeful for with better data better analysis that instead of trying to avoid all risk, because we really have a problem scoping it, right? And so we, we try and make it very black and white, that data and greater adaptability will enable, you know, risks that are risk worth taking, right? Like rethinking underwriting standards, you know, to do things to be more inclusive and seeing what happens before, you know, kind of turning it up. And this, you know, really goes back there to something you and I talk quite a bit about around sandboxes, 
the idea of can we do test and learn as it relates to you know regulation Jason, I think you and I should rename sandboxes because sandboxes is like, it's like a dirty word now. I think we should just call them labs. I think we should just call them regulatory labs. It sounds much more official and scientific. What do you say? Yes. Labs, you're wearing white coats, safety glasses. 100%. No one goes into the lab with the intent of blowing it up. It might happen. It's all about the messaging. Yeah. It's all about the messaging. But I will say we have sandboxes now all over the world. Uh, the United States is an outlier in being uncomfortable with sandboxes. I mean, there's just so much adoption. Uh, yeah, save, you know, except for a handful of states that and, you know, we can query uh, how effective those sandboxes have been, which doesn't do much for <laughs> which doesn't do much for our cause. But, you know, that's the subject of another episode. Um all right, so let's talk about the CFPB. They've had a an interesting year that sort of got busy towards the end, um, up into the election cycle, and it's gotten even busier. I suspect that that momentum is not going to stop come 2021. But Joanne, I wanted to get some uh, insight and thoughts from you about what we think the new director might look like. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I think that the financial regulatory agency heads in general are going to look different because I think they are going to be much, much more diverse than what we have had in the past. I think there's a real commitment to this. Um, You may know the work of Chris Brimmer at um, Georgetown Law School researching the fact that we have had no Black financial agency regulatory heads at the federal level at least since the Great Depression, with the exception currently of Rodney Hood, who chairs the uh, the National Credit Union Administration, zero. You know, we've had we've had black board members, but not heading these agencies. I think there's going to be a tremendous focus on diversity, and there's also going to be a tremendous focus on racial equity issues all across the board and everything we're talking about. The the killing of George Floyd is still very much top of mind. It, you know, for complicated reasons, it wasn't an issue that blew over and people went back to where they were before. I think it really moved people into a, a sustained focus. So that's one thing. And then I think the other thing, and, and I think you're alluding to it, Dara, is that we'll, we should expect a, uh, a really energized enforcement agenda. Um, the, the CFPB has been uh, noticeably active uh, lately with its enforcement activities, <clears throat> but um, I think we're, we're likely to have somebody who will really bring a, an aggressive posture on enforcement. I don't know. I think I really noticed an uptick like starting in August. It was like in a few months leading up before the election, all of a sudden we started hearing, seeing press releases and announcements coming out of the agency that had been quite sleepy uh, the three years prior. Like there was I, I was going to some... say not just sleepy the beginning of the year, but like sleepy for three and a half years. Oh, yeah. I mean. I mean, and we had, you know, it was, you know, a round robin of interim directors and, you know, there was sort of a a general lack of focus, you know, things that I had had on the agenda, like all of a sudden I would stop hearing about. And there was still some rulemaking activity happening. Um, But in terms of enforcement and, you know, and supervision, supervision was felt slower. Enforcement felt real sleepy. Um, and it felt like all of a sudden in the months leading up to, towards the election, it was like, okay, we got to do stuff. Like, 
I don't know what memo got, I don't, you know, I'm not privy. I don't know what memo got circulated, but it, it definitely, you know, all of a sudden in August picked up and it has, it is not slowed down. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious from a, from a budgeting standpoint, whether or not we're going to see more enforcement attorneys being hired and what sort of additional resources we're going to see there because we hadn't seen it the past three years. So I'm wondering if we're going to harken back to a Cordray era CFPB sort of approach. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, Rich Cordray was uh, uh, the attorney general of Ohio and uh, had an enforcement background. So I would think we'll see more, yes, more enforcement lawyers, a very active enforcement agenda and a rulemaking agenda as well. As you say, they've got some important things in the pipeline. You know, as it relates to the enforcement actions, one of the things I I would love to see here that how the FCA set up their Office of Innovation in their sandbox, I think is so important, is this idea of conveying intent. Not that it's uh, you can just say, hey, as long as your intent was good, if you, you know, you go off and what you did turns out to be bad, you're off the hook. But I would love to see kind of both the stick and the carrot attached here in terms of the stick being, hey, you know, enforcement is going to go up. But as long as you can show like your intent and there was good intent for the customers, especially consumers that you were trying to innovate for, you do get some leniency. You know, and like the whole paradigm there is just so much more modern as opposed to right now, it feels like we're caught in these pendulum swings of, hey, we need to pull back and, you know, just let industry do its thing to the, no, we need to, you know, go punish any wrongdoing, real or perceived, you know, that the the swings, I think the group that's getting hurt is probably the marginalized ones in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. Uh, Joanne, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to what you think the CFPB's Office of Innovation is really going to look like in a Biden administration. Well, I hope it's going to be very active. I hope all of the agencies' uh, innovation programs will be gaining momentum. And um, I, to the point that you just made, Jason, one of the things that people need to be mindful of is that the, the compliance tools are improving through RegTech and through some of the FinTech changes. And one thing the regulators should be careful of is that if they, if a, if a, say a bank is thinking about adopting a better tool for looking for money laundering, for example, yep. they worry about the fact that they may find out that there was a whole lot of money laundering going on before that their older tool didn't find. And they don't want to be punished for that. As you say, Jason, if they had the good intent and they were using the state of the art method, um, but they're a little afraid of turning that rock over for fear that there could be a regulatory repercussion of that. This is going to be the life we're going to be in now as far into the future as we can see. The data is increasing, the AI is increasing, and the tools are going to get better and better to find discrimination, to find money laundering, to find unfair and deceptive practices, you name it. And um, the regulators should welcome the use of these better tools and not and not punish old behavior that had, again, that was maybe the best that could be done at the time. So what do we, so I'd love to talk about some like of this 
technology, right? So we see a massively increased adoption in AI, in AI-driven tools um, across a variety of platforms and reg tech uh, certainly included in that. What's our sense about whether or not our regulators, you know, sort of across the board, you know, the banking regulators, the consumer regulators, you know, the SEC, the FTC, are they equipped with the right information and expertise to supervise and, you know, audit the use of these tools properly. So you don't run in to a situation like you just described, like, are they armed with the right information and resources to be able to accurately assess whether or not these tools are actually good for the industry? Yeah, I would say the bad news is they are not equipped, but the good news is they realize this and they're really working on how to be collaborative with the um, with the private sector as well and to figure out. I, I think a lot of them are very focused. I, I am extremely optimistic about the trend on the regulators. We work with them all the time in the United States and all over the world. I'm a former bank regulator myself, and there has been such an embrace of technology and innovation and such a move toward uh, innovation that a few years back would have taken courage to try. There's much more readiness by regulators to try things. The CFPB just put on their tech sprint a month or two ago. I mean, that was a really important undertaking. The US Treasury is planning a tech sprint on financial crime. Um, some of the other agencies have them on the drawing board as well. So the trend line has been really positive, but they do need to do rapid learning, rapid clarification of standards for things, especially like using AI, that's probably the hardest one. And the hard, hard questions of how are we going to permit data to be used? How are we going to figure the, out the, the privacy issues vis-a-vis -vis the benefits of using data in new ways? These are tough issues and the regulators are going to have to scramble to get on yeah, top. Yeah, I see lots of revisions to protocols of those supervisory manuals happening in the near future to account for so much of this, um, which you know, when these were originally drafted, you know, they didn't, they didn't uh, have these questions to ask, quite frankly. Well, and I think one of the places that technology, and I think COVID has been good and hopefully will drive some changes, even how we think about structuring the agencies themselves, that can we centralize some of this expertise? And because, hey, we've proven you can actually go do a bank exam without hunkering down in their conference room for four weeks. You know, so can we do it more continuously and by getting the expertise that's centralized around AI, you know, do you end up with that AI SWAT team that you don't expect every examiner in the field to be able to deal with that? Let alone, you know, imagine them interacting now with some of the hotshot startups that are out there pulling some of the best minds out of the Googles and the Amazons and academia to go do hot shot um, AI things, right? You imagine that field exam or, you know, deer in headlights. The answer will always be no. So, you know, can you build some of those hot shots? It's easier, right? It's, just, it's easier right? to say in no. In a centralized <laughs> location, yeah. I think that's a great point. There's a lot of pressures on regulatory structure, and I've been in and around Washington long enough that I'm doubtful that we'll be doing much actual restructuring of agencies unless there are even more crises upon us. But we do need new models, and we kind of think of it as creating connective tissue among these agencies without 
changing their official setups. And uh, a big example of this, I mean, if I'm making predictions for next year, I'm going to say again this year what I said last year when people asked me for predictions, which is cryptocurrency is going mainstream really fast. It creates all kinds of structural and um, mold-breaking challenges for regulators. And the same is true of central bank digital currency, CBDC. The United States is not going to be first because China's already got uh, an EU on um, in some of the marketplace. And I think over 30 countries are working on this. But we are in robust conversations about a digital dollar. Digital dollar is going to bring programmable money. I mean, these are really different challenges and the tech is coming fast and it's tied up in many cases with geopolitical, you know, winds of, of, uh, of change. And uh, our regulators are really going to have to scramble. And so many of these things, you don't even know what law, if any, applies to it, what agency has the lead role. We got a lot of change ahead. And that's how all of Dara's kids are going to be sent to college. Exactly. So, so so thanks. (laughs) Thanks you. Thank you for that. Um, But so given everything you just said, Joanne, that sort of brings another issue that we, that we glanced over at the beginning, but that is security and privacy, data security, data privacy, and cyber, which now with the, massive and rapid move towards um, digital everything, the way bank exams are going to be conducted, the way businesses are, are, are you know, doing business now, the way financial institutions and those that service financial institutions are interacting with end customers, everything changed in 2020. Where we were when we were communicating, how we were communicating, using AI to communicate, again, what I, I forget Joanne or Jason who said it, but we took 10 years and like, shoved it into a few months. Um, All of that makes these cybersecurity and privacy uh, questions percolate right up to the top. And as of right now, we still, you know, have no one federal uh, agency that is, you know, our uh, our privacy and security go-to. Um, states have been doing this on their own, um, some in more robust ways than others. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think that there's any state that hasn't considered some state-level uh, privacy and security protocols. Uh, you know, obviously California, New York, Illinois with their biometric acts, like they, they've sort of been front and center on these issues. Um, and I know Joanne, you were mentioning, uh, previously that we've had some bills sitting on the house floor for, for quite some time. Do you think that in a Biden administration, we are going to see a federal privacy regulator? A couple of months ago, I was predicting that if that if we had a sweep of the Democrats, White House, House and Senate, that we could see the whole issue of privacy really move fast, which people aren't ready for because at the federal level, it's been sort of stuck for a long time. Lots of smaller issues getting, you know, sub issues getting debated. Assuming that the uh, Republicans keep the Senate, I think it won't be fast. And do I think we'll have a separate agency? I'm kind of skeptical of that. But I do think there's going to be a concerted effort to get our arms around the privacy and data use issues, data rights, data protection, 
from both the standpoint of privacy and cyber uh, security as well. I, I think that this is the issue of our age, how data will be used and should be used and should not be used, how we're gonna get the good benefits of all the amazing things happening through data. I've been reading a book I, I have really enjoyed called um, The Future is Faster Than You Think by Peter Diamandis. Reading it meaning while I'm running, I'm listening to it. And uh, wow, it's a real eye opener, even for someone like me who lives and breathes technology. So these things are coming fast. The government, it's not anybody's fault, but the government's not designed to keep up with change at this pace. We're going to have to reinvent those regulatory models back to the need for sandboxes and tech sprints. But if I had to bet money, I, I don't think we're going to see a privacy agency en enacted in the next year or 18 months now. And I think it's also a, a I'm being I'm being reminded of that special uh, episode of Breaking Banks that we did because, you know, Europe has already told the United States that, like, we really suck at keeping private data private. So Shrems, too, you know, and we have, you know, the the fall of the fall of Privacy Shield and, and all of that. So what are your thoughts, Jace? Well, it's creating a divide, right? That was actually one of my favorite episodes, the Fall of the Privacy Shield, you know, that we did, Dara, that we do need to get our act together. And, you know, if you need any more proof, look at the recent infiltration of the U.S. government and, you know, where cyber sits. So we need, like, a concerted effort to think about it from a regulatory point of view, to think about it from a consumer and customer benefit point of view, to think about it from a protection point of view, that it's just, it, it's all gotten so complex. And apparently almost, a national security point of view, too. Yeah, and a national oh. security. Small, tiny thing, but sorry to interrupt. I mean, I don't know what you could possibly find if you got into, you know, Treasury and Commerce's, um, you know, oh. databases, but I'm assuming it's pretty interesting. But, you know, it, it's so complex. It does speak to the need to be more collaborative across oceans and even within the United States that, you know, if you think of, you know, I don't know the quite correct medieval analogy of this, but the U.S. tends to, you know, say, no, this is, you know, our fiefdom. And then within the fiefdom of the United States, you've got, you know, multiple federal fiefdoms, and then you've got state level fiefdoms, that it's a bit of a zoo. Is it like our arrogant independence is like, is that why we're so bad at this? <laughs> jo Joanne, why are we so bad at this? I think there's some of that in it. Um, I also think that we suffer from having so many uh, regulatory agencies in the United States. It's a unique model. You know, it kind of grew organically. I don't think hardly anyone would design it this way. If we were starting with a clean slate and the digital tools we have today, we wouldn't build what we have, but we have it. And it definitely slows us down. I, mean, I talked to regulators in other parts of the world who want to reach out to the U.S. with various kinds of initiatives. And they'll say, we don't know who to ask. You know, there's like, there's not a central point for most of the things that people are working on, um, unless it's really a central bank issue that you're going to talk with the Fed about. And the problem with, with putting data privacy in the hands of one agency is obviously it's much bigger than um, finance, but it's everything. There's nothing that's not touched by it. 
so where do you draw those lines? You know, maybe I mean, for, we for a while, right? The FTC was our privacy, like the FTC was our privacy yeah. police, and that seemed to be the most uh, the agency with the broadest sort of uh, view of commerce, uh, you know, in the country. So, so that kind of made sense. So maybe it ends up there, but it's, but Joanne, you're right. It's hard because the SEC has its little piece and FINRA has its little piece and the CFPB has its piece and data privacy and security are an important part of every single one of these, you know, regulatory oversight, uh, processes, but only like this, right? Mm -hmm. Like only for what they're looking at, in their lanes because they can't, right? They can't go broader. That, that's not their job. And, you know, they can't overstep what their authority is. But nobody is looking at it all together except now the states, right? California is looking at it all together. You know, if you sit uh, under NYDFS supervision, they're looking at it all together. Um, and I'm wondering if those are, I mean, as, as much of a headache as honestly the state of California has has caused for for, you know, registering as a data broker and, and the CCPA, it's not a bad model, uh, you know, to, you know, it's not a bad model to look at. And they borrowed, you know, the core concepts from Europe, which isn't a bad model to look at either. And, you know, I think maybe, you know, our, our federal, uh, our lawmaker, I shouldn't even say agencies, our lawmakers should be looking at that more closely because even if we don't do it through a, re a separate regulatory agency, we can do it through legislation, um, well-written, thoughtful legislation. Well, and it, it takes one of two forms. We look at this and say thoughtful regulation and interagency operability, modernization is a source of competitive advantage that allows us to solve a whole host of issues that we we face around inclusion and discrimination and you know just making sure that um you know, a major part of our population is keeping up and creating that access while simultaneously protecting them or we wait for something really really bad to happen and then we try and do it you know at a shotgun marriage to try and clean it up you know, as fast as we can, all of some of the 2008 stuff, right? I was going to say, like, there's at least there's a there's a playbook for number for like that second option that you were talking about. We know how to do that. <laughs> well, I was about to ask Joanne this question when you were making that point, And I think it's even more relevant now. Like how bad of a thing has to happen before the U.S. would actually, you know, undertake this if it's not for the, the right reason which is you know to be competitive to bring social justice but you got the question out first era because i was just going through my head I'm like how bad would it have to be i'm like oh really well, really bad i mean but but hasn't it been really really bad and joanne i'll let you answer but like half of americans have had their data compromised already it, it, and count count on you know 27 people's different hands how many data breaches have uh, been experienced that some of the largest financial institutions, you know, in our country, the federal government's been hacked. We've had election interference. Like it's been really, like it's been really bad. I mean, I'm going to wait for someone to steal the nuke codes. I don't know. Joanne, what do you think? 
Yeah, I have, in some ways, politically, it's and, and in terms of public opinion, it's the frog boiling phenomenon, you know, the, the gradual water getting gradually hot and the frog not realizing until it's too late. Um, but I, I do think the U.S. will have to deal with this. I, there's no doubt in my mind that over the coming years, we will have legislation and regulatory policy trying to sift down to the basic issues of, again, data rights, data limitations on how data can be used, especially in finance and in medicine uh, and health. I also think that I, I hope that lawmakers and policymakers will realize that some of the policy problems that they're confronting may have technology solutions. You know, there's this whole family of so-called privacy-enhancing technologies, PETs, homomorphic encryption, zero-knowledge proof, these methods of limiting the amount of data that gets put exposed. You know, if you're in a situation where you're um, uh, trying to buy alcohol, the clerk doesn't really need all the information on your driver's license and they don't even need your birthday. They just need to know yes or no. Are you old enough to buy alcohol? Um, Sounds like a case of digital identity. So digital identity, I think, is going to be a huge issue relating to the privacy issue. I think we're going to be really grappling with that over the next few years. The Congress, I used to work for the U.S. Senate. I'm not criticizing them, but Congress has a tendency when there is a big crisis to reorganize to solve it. And that's not always you know, it's something that's concrete and, you know, you can see it being done, but it may or may not really solve the problem. Um, but we are going to have to grapple with solving these problems. Uh, well, you know, we're we're nearing sort of the, the end of our time and the three of us have packed a lot, right? We've packed a lot in uh, to this episode. So because I'm a nerd, I've been taking notes this whole time. So, because that's what I do. Uh, so I have a comprehensive list of the five things that we think are going to be hot from a regulatory perspective in 2021. If we're ready, one, according to Joanne, we've got crypto going mainstream Two, reg tech, as they say in Zoolander, it's so hot right now. Three, we've got digital dollars and programmable money Four data privacy, five, cybersecurity, all of that wrapped up in digital identity. Anything my wonderful guests would like to add to that list? That's plenty. That's plenty for, add, there's plenty for us to do in 2021, I think. I'm going to add the issues of racial and gender uh, fairness, trying to deal with the problems of distribution of wealth and income, which some of which is obviously beyond the reach of financial uh, companies and financial regulation. But I think we're going to see a very, very big focus on that and also on ethics. One topic we haven't touched on today is green finance. I think that is going to become a pretty hot issue this year and more so next year, including safety and soundness issues around lending to places that are at risk from climate change, and also things like the concentration of energy use for uh, mining Bitcoin. You know, there's a lot of environmental issues that are really coming to the fore, I think, as well. Well, Jason, I, I think Joanne just outlined a wonderful segment for Breaking Banks, don't you think? Yes. 
We'll have to have the folks back from SP Global that have been doing a lot of great analysis around ESG and the impact on the financial sector. Yeah, that would be good. Well, awesome. And I, one more thing. I think we're going to have breakthroughs on financial crime. The technology is getting good there. Awesome. Good. We're starting to make traction. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I hope all of my listeners have a very happy holiday, a happy new year. Stay safe, stay sane, um, and can't wait to talk with you all again in 2021. 